welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. Advantage federal prosecutors in a high-stakes court battle between President Trump and his own Justice Department. New York federal judge Kimba Wood rejected Trump's request to get exclusive access to evidence seized by the FBI last week from his longtime personal lawyer, Michael Cohen. The judge did not make a final decision, but one decision she made led to the biggest revelation in the hearing. One of Cohen's three clients was Sean Hannity, the Fox News commentator who's a Trump supporter and for the last week has denounced the Cohen raid. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner at McCarter in English. Bob, usually in a case involving evidence that might involve privileged communications between an attorney and a client, a separate team of prosecutors that's been called a taint team reviews the evidence first. Why should the president be treated any differently than anyone else at this stage of the investigation? Well, at this point, we don't know whether that actually will happen. The judge has not made a final decision on how she intends to handle this review as to whether the documents that were taken during the search of Mr. Cohn's office were, will, uh, were, were actually privileged or not. Uh, and so what the judge has said is she is considering either the, the traditional form of review, which, as you say, is a taint team of federal prosecutors who are unrelated to the investigation, who will review the information to call out anything that would be considered attorney-client privilege, or the possibility is also that she will appoint an independent lawyer, something called a special master, someone who doesn't work for the Department of Justice, who will review uh, the records to try to call out any attorney-client privilege information. And I think she did, she's doing this not because she has any concerns about the impartiality or the integrity of the prosecutors in the Southern District of New York, but she recognizes that appearance of any kind of unfairness is going to be closely scrutinized given the high-profile nature of this case. She did say, I have faith in the Southern District U.S. Attorney's Office and their integrity is unimpeachable. Is that any kind of a message to Trump who's made it a practice to denigrate federal judges and the Justice Department? Well, I think she's certainly sending a clear signal that she is not buying into any arguments that prosecutors have been corrupted in any way or that there is some kind of political bias that is motivating this investigation. But on the other hand, she is sensitive to the fact that this is going to be very closely watched, and she wants to be uh, concerned about not only any actual bias but appearance of bias. And I think in the end, it's likely that we'll see a special master play at least some role in the course of this document review. Bob, explain what they do when they go through these documents, and because every lawyer, every communication between a lawyer and a client is not privileged. No, that's right, and that's an important understanding that just because an attorney is involved in a communication does not render that an attorney-client privileged communication. Often, attorneys work as uh, business advisors. Um, they may not be communicating with an individual in the course of seeking legal advice. All of that would not be privileged. The classic attorney-client privileged communication is a situation where an individual provides information to an attorney for the purpose of seeking 
seeking legal advice. And the question of whether the privilege, privilege exists primarily turns on whether the client believes that the information that they are providing is for the purpose of obtaining legal advice and they believe that it will be treated confidential uh, in a confidential way by the attorney. The New York Times reported that people in the Trump administration say that they see Cohen's the inquiry about Cohen as a more serious threat to Trump than the investigation by special counsel Robert Mueller. Can you explain why they might see that? Well, it's hard to say not having Uh, any access to the search warrant application that the government brought before a federal judge in order to seize the records, uh, or certainly no idea of what might be in those records. But whenever prosecutors get a hold of communications between an attorney and and their client, there is is a very high bar that has to be met, first of all, in order to be given a search, uh, in order to have a search warrant granted for that type of search. And you never know what kind of information information might be found there. It suggests from the outset that they certainly believe that there is a possibility that Mr. Cohen might be involved in some kind of criminal activity. And given his close relationship with President Trump, there is certainly speculation that this could pose a serious threat to President Trump. I want to turn to to Sean Hannity for a moment. He later released a statement saying, Cohen had never represented me in any matter, although they occasionally had brief discussions about legal questions that he assumed were confidential. Now, so can you, I know you don't know this for a fact, but why was he then listed as a client by Cohen? Well, that's a good question. There's been some contradictory statements about the relationship between Sean Hannity and Michael Cohen. Uh, Michael Cohen only had three legal law clients in the the last 18 months, so it's not like he's got a list of many clients. He obviously was operating uh, much as a business advisor and not acting as a lawyer in most of his interactions. But he identified um, Mr. Hannity as a client, and the reason he did so is that that when the U.S. Attorney's Office taint team or whether the special master is ultimately brought in here or is going through those communications, the first thing that the court wants to know is who are the clients. So when they see a communication, for example, between Mr. Bob, Hannity, we've, got to, we've got to stop there, but I'm sure we'll be picking up with this discussion again. That's Robert Mintz, a partner at McCarter in English. A busy day for the Supreme Court as it handed down decisions in several cases and heard oral arguments in one of the high-profile cases of the term. Joining us is Bloomberg Supreme Court reporter Greg Store. So, Greg, let's start with news about Justice Sonia Sotomayor. She broke her right soul shoulder in a fall at her Washington home yesterday. Was she at oral arguments today? She was an oral argument today and yesterday, as a matter of fact. Uh, apparently, before they, uh, she got a diagnosis that it was indeed broken. Um, she looked like she might have had a sling on underneath her robe. Uh, the Supreme Court says that she'll, she'll have a sling on for several weeks, um, but otherwise seemed to be uh, functioning as normal. And we should note that she is diabetic, and in January, emergency medical personnel treated her at her home for symptoms of low blood sugar. So, and let's let's turn to uh, what the court actually did today. In a loss for the Trump administration, the court threw out a provision in federal immigration law that made it easier to deport immigrants who've been convicted of crimes by a vote of five to four. What was the reasoning of the majority there? 
Yes, so, so, so this has to do with people who have committed a crime and a, a definition that says if you've been convicted of a crime of violence, uh, it's, it's a little bit easier to deport you. Um, and the question for the court and what the majority found was whether the, the majority found that this provision was so vague that it's unconstitutional. Uh, it, it's the case the court actually heard arguments in twice. Uh, the Trump administration has inherited the position of the Obama administration uh, trying to defend this provision. Uh, but last term, when the court only had eight justices, they couldn't come up with a five-justice majority, so they reheard it this term with the Trump administration defending the law, it turns out, unsuccessfully. And Neil Gorsuch was actually the decisive vote here. He agreed with the liberal justices in that five-to-four decision. The court also dropped a high-profile case which pitted the Justice Department against Microsoft in a clash over digital privacy and international law. Why was that case dropped? Yes, this was dropped because uh, it, it was interpreting a 1986 law that Congress later updated. They updated it as part of, part of that omnibus uh, spending bill that got attention for all sorts of other reasons. Uh, and in it, it clarified the rules for when U.S. law enforcement officials are trying to get data that is held by a U.S. computer company or some other type of telecom company being held on an overseas server. The case before the court involved uh, Microsoft emails that are being held and stored in Ireland. The question was whether uh, the Justice Department could get access to those emails. The new law says that in this sort of situation, generally the U.S. can get access to those emails, but there are new provisions that let both the tech companies and the foreign governments object if there's some sort of problem. That's an easy way to decide a case when it's decided for you. Let's talk about this high-profile case that we spoke about a little bit yesterday over whether states can start collecting billions of dollars in sales taxes from Internet retailers that don't currently charge tax to their customers. Could you get a read on how the justices were leaning? It was tough, Jude. I have to tell you, a lot of us went in there thinking there was a really good chance the court was going to overturn this 1992 precedent and free states to tax internet re- or require internet retailers to collect sales taxes, regardless of whether they have a store or warehouse in the state. Um, the, the, the South Dakota, which is trying to overturn that ruling, started with a, a three-nothing advantage because you have three justices who've already said that they want to let states do this. And it was pretty clear today, uh, to me at least, that they picked up Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, the question is whether they picked up that fifth vote or not. And, and there it was a lot harder to, uh, harder to tell. You had a lot of justices who were asking questions of both sides. And tell me about, uh, it seemed as if uh, there was an unusual coalition, Justices Sonia Sotomayor and Samuel Alito. Tell me about what they were asking. Yeah, so so the two of them were, seemed to be the most reluctant to overturn that 1992 precedent. Um, Justice Sotomayor uh, asked the first several questions in, in the case of, of the South Dakota lawyer, and she essentially said, um, you know, your problem isn't with this 1992 ruling, which is called Quill. Your problem is that you need a mechanism to, um, to, to, to get the consumers who actually owe this tax to pay it. So you need to find a, a method for... Uh, for um, uh, c- 
for collecting it, for getting them to collect it. So she seemed like a vote to uphold, to, to leave the Quill precedent intact. Later on, Justice Alito joined as well. I believe all his questions were asked of South Dakota, not of the other side. Certainly, he was uh, very uh, seemed very reluctant to jump into this fray and and change the the status quo. Well, what about Justice Roberts as far as the conservatives, where they might be able to pick up a vote? Yeah, so he is uh, was tough to read. He asked questions of both sides. A couple times he asked uh, the, the lawyer for South Dakota and the Trump administration, which is which is on South Dakota's side, whether there was some sort of minimum requirement for con- economic contact with a state. So South South Dakota says our law only applies. You only have to collect taxes if you make uh, a certain amount of, uh, of sales in the state. And, and he wanted to know, is that constitutionally required, that there be some sort of minimum amount of sales? And neither uh, South Dakota nor the Trump administration was willing to say, yes, there is a constitutional minimum, or at least not a clear constitutional minimum. Not clear to me what the Chief Justice is going to do with that that answer. Uh, he, he seems to be a vote, a vote that could go either way at this point. And how Breyer... At some arguments, this term has been camouflaging his his, or at least asking questions so much of both sides. How how would did Breyer and um, K- and Kagan react? Yes, I would say Breyer was sort of camouflaged in plain sight, as he does sometimes. <laughs> he, he essentially told people what his problem was, which is that um, there are a lot of factual problems here, that one side says, oh, compliance with, with state taxation would be really, really hard for small retailers. The other side says, oh, actually, you get the software, it takes care of everything. And he basically said, I don't know what, uh, what the right answer to that is, and um, I, I don't know how I'm going to figure that out. And it's the kind of thing that Congress would be much better equipped for for dealing with. Now, it's important that, you know, regardless how this case comes out, Congress could essentially overturn what the court does. This is not an area where the court gets the final word. Um, so uh, it, it, the question is kind of what the court's going to create as the default rule, what, what's going to be the, the, the rule going forward unless Congress, which of course has some trouble passing legislation, unless Congress passes uh, legislation to deal with this. So, Greg, we have only a minute here. I'm going to ask you a big question. Do, you know, you're there all the time. So we see this, you know, from time to time, and it seems as if there might be some unusual alliances forming at different of these arguments. Um, is that true, or is it basically still liberals versus the conservatives? Well, so this case today involves something called the Dormant Commerce Clause, and that is an area where it kind of defies ideological uh, uh, description. So that's not that much of a surprise. The Gorsuch, the first case we talked about today with the deportation case with Gorsuch joining the liberals was definitely noteworthy, um, and, and that's something to watch going forward, um, that there might be occasions when he uh, sort of goes against type and votes with the liberals. Well, it's always nice to see see crossing of, of those lines anyway. Thanks so much, Greg. As always, that's Bloomberg Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr, and he'll be, of course, following the arguments again tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.